You're listening to Are You Content? The Content Podcast. I hope you're all doing well during this continuing unusual time, but it's actually an excellent time for the topic of this two-part episode four. We're going to take a deep dive into the double entendre name of this content podcast, Are You Content? We're going to explore the root of discontent and the work-life balance of a content creator. Our guest on this podcast is Stephen Klett. Steve has been my friend for more than a decade. I met him as a college freshman when I was 18 years old. We've been in a band together, Undercover Rabbis, for more than five years. In college, Steve majored in English literature with a double minor in philosophy and creative writing. He's a critically acclaimed poet and earned his MFA in poetry from the New School in New York. After his graduate studies, Steve transitioned to writing in a professional environment. He worked in breaking newsrooms, but he was eventually laid off, so he found himself creating B2B and B2C content from home. This content creation eventually led to his discontent. Steve was unhappy because the so-called freedom of remote work that was being sold to him wasn't free at all. It actually came at a heavy cost to his mental well-being. He was underpaid as a content writer, he didn't have access to healthcare benefits, and he missed the human interaction of the workplace. But tapping into his philosophical curiosity, Steve eventually connected with the writings and lectures of the British philosopher Mark Fisher. Now, we'll explain who Mark Fisher is and what he said about content creation in this episode. But here's the gist. Since the advent of the internet and the evolution of the gig economy, the quote-unquote be-your-own-boss entrepreneurial spirit is sold to you as freedom. But in the current economic framework, it's often just the opposite. If you've been creating content in remote work environments for several years, as I have, you may have had some real questions along the way. For instance, how did it become quote-unquote cool to be an entrepreneur and put in insane amounts of work to start and sustain a business? Why is the pressure to create more content at an all-time high? Why are we conditioned to equate our time with money and productivity? Why do we sometimes feel like we're a slave to our computer or phone? Can a society with greater social nets, like more affordable access to healthcare, support more creativity across the board? Now, Steve identifies politically as a communist, yet he manages to be friends with me, a so-called dirty capitalist, as I like to joke with him. But he knows where my heart is in all of this. I believe in free enterprise, but I also believe there are deep-seated problems with the current system. I believe COVID-19 has exposed these problems, and these are things we shouldn't be afraid to talk about, no matter what our political leanings are. For some factual context to support my views, here's an excerpt from a recent Bloomberg article. In the U.S., homebound employees are logging three hours more per day on the job than before city and statewide lockdowns, according to data from NordVPN, which tracks when users connect and disconnect from its service. And the article continues, the contours of the workday have changed too. Without commutes, wake-up times have shifted later, NordVPN found, but peak email times have crept up an hour to 9 a.m., according to data from email client Superhuman. Employees are also logging back in late at night. Surfshark, another VPN provider, has seen spikes in usage from midnight to 3 a.m. that were not present before the COVID-19 outbreak. So... 
If you're a content creator or another kind of professional who feels like your work-life balance is really out of whack, this two-part conversation is for you. Let's get to the root of the discontent. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Steve. Hey, Samantha. Welcome to my car office. Car office. This is a, we're in a regular office. I don't know what you're talking about. In front of a quick check. Yes, we are. We're also in front of the Diamond Agency. Yes. We are in Clifton, New Jersey. We just wrapped up our band practice. Mm -hmm. And I do want to mention the fact that our opening music is Undercover Rabbi's music, which I say in the credits. Goodbye, Sky Captain. Goodbye, Sky Captain, <laughs> which coincidentally is your girlfriend's favorite Undercover Rabbi song. Is Shout that out to Ariel. Yes. She loves that song. Um, and she plays it once a day on her way to work. Wow. That is dedication. <laughs> <laughs> she loves that song. That's great. What was the inspiration behind Goodbye Sky? Because I, I asked this question honestly because I don't know the answer. We started playing that song as a jam one time. I couldn't and, remember. <laughs> and it was before you were in the band. Oh, okay. That's why. Um, <laughs> and then Matt said it sounded like a Slint song. So one of my favorite songs of Slint is, what was it? Good morning, Captain. Matt is here, by the way. He's in the back. He's. Hi. This is live. <laughs> audio engineering. This is Undercover Rabbis. <laughs> yeah, and it's the last song on Spiderland, Good Morning Captain. For some reason, I was like, oh, we could do the inverse of that, Goodbye Sky Captain. Right. And all our songs were dealing with space and stuff. Yes, that was a very spacey album. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Electric Sand. Well, thanks for letting me borrow the music that I played on <laughs> <laughs> to do the credit music. <laughs> I still think it's our best song. It definitely is tops for me. Mm -hmm. Among the top three, I would say. Anyway, why we're really here is to delve into some philosophical conversations that we've been having lately about... Content. About content. And with this podcast, I didn't think that I'd be talking about philosophy per se, but this subject is rather intriguing. And it also has to do with the fact that you run a very successful Facebook group surrounding this philosophical topic. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna take this as a basic approach because the average listener might not know who this individual is. His name is Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher. And can you give me sort of a Cliff Notes introduction to the philosophy of Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher was a British philosopher and college professor in Britain, and he taught philosophy, and he uh, got his start doing mostly writing about cybernetics, and he was in some, he was in a school of philosophy uh, back in, like, late 90s. That's where he sort of came up. And then he, uh, got most famous later in his life for writing the very influential book, Capitalist Realism, which came out at the, right before the, the Great Recession. Right, the Great Recession. Yeah, the, you know, the housing market collapse, um, which in itself is probably one of the biggest events of our time. Definitely. Um, and his Capitalist Realism kind of you know, the post-mortem, the initial follow-up to that was, you know, will capitalist realism survive the crash? You know, capitalist realism became this larger way for him to explain 
what we were going through and how you could look at our political and economics structure in the world. And then later he wrote the book of Hauntology. Which is a fun word. Hauntology. Hauntology. Which is in the it's in the Mark Fisher group, Hauntological. Right, so that's the name of the group that you yeah. run. So what is the name again? It's Mark Fisher Means for Hauntological Teen. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs> Little play on words there. Yep. Haunt hauntology and hauntological. Um, and this is actually I can tell you how I got into Mark Fisher. Yes, definitely. Um, through the word hauntology. Because it was brought up in a video by a YouTuber named uh, Cuck Philosophy. He made a video explaining hauntology and lost futures in like a short 10 to 15 minute introduction. Right. Um, and hauntology is a word taken from the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Okay. Uh, from the 19... 70s and 80s, and he developed hauntology in his book Specters of Marx from 1994, which examined how Marxism and Marx was going to be looked at after the Soviet Union fell. Okay. And so it was to describe the haunting nature of both capitalism and Marxism, socialism, and how it would affect our political economy when the Cold War no longer existed. Right. And it was presumed that the end of history had come because without the Cold War, which we had really, like, seen as these giant historical, like, struggle, now that it had ended, capitalism had won. What, right. What was going to be the haunting effect of that great, almost right. century-long struggle. Because the ideas were out there. They weren't just going to vanish into thin right. air. Okay. And so that's how Derrida framed it in his book. But Mark Fisher took it in this other direction, which was that, for one thing, it's a funny word because it's haunt and ontological. Ontological meaning the study, the study of, of being. Right. You know, the study of being. And haunt in French is... Pronounced the same as aunt. <laughs> okay. So aunt and haunt are pronounced the same in French. So it's this play on words where the word itself is haunted by the pronunciation of haunt. <laughs> but the idea is that your being is haunted. Okay. Like your presence is mixed up with its absence. And that was a big thing for Derrida. And, and Mark Fisher kind of took this in the direction that we as culture and society are haunted by this nostalgia. Okay. In, this, in what sense, nostalgia? Well, he always used to say in these lectures, show me one thing that the 21st century has produced that could not have been made in the 20th century. Right. You know, okay, what, yeah. what, has, what has been produced in the last... 20 years that wasn't produced in the 20th century. For some reason, Apple AirPods popped into my head. <laughs> right, but like that is also... It's still also, telecommunications. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like an updated technology. Right. 
But the like function of it was something that existed in the 20th century, like just listening to something. But it was more like what music just, you know, he would say this in his lectures and every single one of his interviews. Name me one thing that the industry of music has produced in the last 20 years that couldn't have been produced in the 20th century. It's interesting. Nobody's given him anything. I feel like uh, movies, too, have been largely recycled right. since 2000. And so hauntology is how he describes this phenomenon. Okay. And it's not so much strictly looking at nostalgia, but looking at a society that is haunted by the past. Okay, interesting. And, and you have this, for music, he would talk about it, and this, his two examples that he liked to use were... Uh, Amy Winehouse. He was he was in a mall one time, which he always says is interesting because it's like a, a just a wasteland of capitalism. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that, they're struggling. Like that, malls too. But that it's like, you know, you're walking around and he heard Valerie by Amy Winehouse. I like that song. Yeah, and he. Was, I really. That's one of my favorites of hers. And he he thought that the original was a cover of Amy Winehouse's version. Okay. And he's like, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird that I thought that the original was covering the cover. (laughs) Um, And he said, okay, but that's new. Right. But it sounds like it's... It's old. It's old. And not just in the way we normally say old, you know, because we always say, oh, this sounds like the older times. But, like, as broader where you have this kind of society devoted to just consuming nostalgia. I feel like, too, modern pop has had this whole renaissance of the 80s, like yeah. synth pop and yeah. you know, Bruno Mars, I think, was really getting into that for a while. And The idea that you could commodify things that bring joy, you know, through familiarity and nostalgia and this kind of whimsical... The other one that he used was the Arctic Monkeys, he heard it was like 1980 or 1979, just even in the way they dressed, even in the lower quality, grainy music videos that they would produce. Right. You know, you play these mind tricks. If you went back in time and showed the Arctic Monkeys to somebody living in 1989, what year do you think they would think it was? They would probably <laughs> think it was in 1979. Right. Um, and sort of this kind of like dedicated crafting of culture to creating artifacts that have already been artifacts before. Yeah. Um, and then selling it as new. Well, it's interesting that you use these examples because somebody that I listen to a lot, mega capitalist Gary Vaynerchuk, he's laid out his strategy for a big part of his business in the future. He wants to buy nostalgic brands and reposition them and sell them back to people. And he's doing it with K-Swiss sneakers right now. He's, um, you know, sort of revitalizing that brand and like it's an old brand and he's making it new. And also he's not involved in this, but another brand that's like that, that's sort of becoming popular again is Champion. Like Champion from like, you know, your your dad would wear Champion socks in like the 1990s. And yeah. <laughs> now Champion's cool and kids want it. You yeah. know, it's it's happening. And Mark Fisher sort of had this other, other take on it was that this move towards nostalgia culture, this move towards movies to recreate the past and music to recreate the past and this entire culture industry 
that sort of like he drew from the Frankfurt School and all these other schools of philosophy that were interested in culture, he saw as this giant political project. Okay. And that's where it kind of came together with his capitalist realism, that the the political hegemony, the, the ideas of the political disallowed you from being creative outside of these very narrow ideas mm. of nostalgia. There is no alternative outside of these nostalgic structures because in order to do that, you would be taking a risk. Okay. And in order to create something profound and new, you would have to take a risk. But in this culture of nostalgia where you base everything on being familiar and you base on everything on how much it makes you immediately feel good, because you have that sense of familiarity, creativity is not the first priority. Right. And whether it comes to branding, whether it comes to like musical culture, movies, anything you can think of, we are devoted entirely to making as much money for as much profit as possible in order to actually create something that's creative and new and, you know, shows future rather right. than a past that would involve breaking with, like, the neoliberal hegemony that has created this culture of nostalgia, this hauntological way of being. And, and a lot of this, he also accounts for social media and the way that we right. produce content. And that's... And that's how it leads into that's how content it le That's how discussion. it leads into, like, ontology and capitalist realism are wrapped up in the way in which we communicate and the way in which we create a workplace and the way in which it's weird that we're doing a podcast in a car right now <laughs> um, and that we can then sell that and that this is part of a business model that has, like, four or five businesses even stacked within it like right the idea of like the future is canceled the history is ended capitalism is won we need to throw all the chips into free market capitalism is directly in his eyes correlated to the inability to create anything new. Okay, interesting. Did he offer an alternative to capitalism? Because very famously, I worked with somebody who we would sometimes get into these political discussions and he would say, what other alternative is there well, besides capitalism, which is exactly this argument. But he was like, well, what else is there? What else is going to work? We've seen this in other countries. Well, the name of his book, Capitalist Realism, is literally called Is There No Alternative? <laughs> Right, right. Um, and the idea of capitalist realism and the neoliberal hegemony is completely devoted to convincing you that there is no alternative, mm -hmm. that there is no creativity outside of Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden as president mm -hmm. or Donald Trump as president. There is no alternative to that and that if you even think for a second of reforming the system for the betterment of a majority of the people that you're somehow right. giving up something. So what are we, are we saying like that artists could make a living, that musicians could make a living? Well, yeah. Creators like that, could that, make a living. That with better social structures that support working class things. And it's not even just that. It's the way in which we get our media. It's the way that we get the 
small amount of window in which you can be creative and actually turn a profit that is our society. That's how, what we value things based on these kind of superstructures. Right, um, exactly. And that, his, his alternative is, you know, and he, he's from Britain, so he saw this pushback and, and kind of the rise of Corbyn, which he saw as alternative. Right, Jer Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. And he's the uh, Labour Party? The Labour Party. Right. Was the Labour Party leader. Okay. Um, and, and of course, he saw Bernie Sanders as sort of the American version of that as the alternative. You know, is there no alternative to neoliberalism? He saw a return to even further, you know, New Deal Democrats or like kind of Keynesian types of socialism that used to exist in the 40s and 50s. Right, right. And even further back, something providing social structure, something providing opportunity, not just for CEOs, for entrepreneurs, people that are convinced that they have to work 60 to 80 hours a day in order to make minimum wage living that you would have made like 20 years ago. That type of way in which you construct the workplace and that type of self-starterness was the product of there is no alternative. There's right. capitalist realism and there's something that's been taken from you. And that's the one thing that really struck me was that you've been taught this is the only way, but I'm here to tell you something has been taken from you okay. that your parents had. Your parents had opportunity. Your parents had the ability to get a job that then could pay off a mortgage. Your parents had unions. Your parents had the same job, you know, Fordism. Fordism allowed for 40-hour weeks one job that you would have for 40 or 50 years that you would live and die right. doing. And that's not a great life, yeah. but mm -hmm. it allowed you to buy a house. It allowed you to raise a family, and it allowed you to have stability. Right. And people, and starting, he said, 1979 was the end of that. And the beginning yeah. of capitalist realism is the day right around Thatcher came in, right around Reagan. He points to the specific day because it was like a downturn in the economy. And he said, well, this is the end of that kind of Fordism, that kind of like way of thinking. And following that, you saw people working from home, people working 60, 70 hours, 80 hours a week just to make ends meet and getting rich at doing it, you know? Right. Like you made a lot of money in the 80s, but you were told that you had to pretty much give your life up in order to do it. Right. Um, and then you'd become the CEO and you could retire early. But like this kind of like dream of making it big was something that our parents' generation had, which allowed for stability, which allowed them for home ownership, which allowed them for massive amount of profits. You know, a professional class working in an office could, you know, for my dad, you could make 150 $200,000 a year just by working as a middle management professional. We weren't given that opportunity, most of us. Yeah. It's funny, the timeline you say, like, 1979, I'm thinking how old my parents were. They're about, you know, 29, 30 years old, and they're just starting their families, and they had union jobs. You know, they started in um, public education. They got out of public education. My mom went 
well, she started a family and then she eventually went to private education and my dad became a police officer. But um, that was at a time in Jersey City when uh, the school districts were really suffering. Crime was on the rise and they decided to flee to the suburbs, yeah. essentially, like a lot of families did back then. Same thing with my family. Right. Yeah, moving from Passaic to Clifton. But what Mark Fisher kind of points to in these areas is that things were taken from you. Social safety nets, not in Britain. Well, they have the NHS, which has their problems, but we don't have that. We don't have the ability to have the same job for 40 years, so... It, it limits people from starting businesses, too. I mean, that's, like, the biggest thing I think I've seen with, like, our current healthcare system. People are afraid to take that leap and do something new because they don't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. And... Therefore, they can't start their business. It's, it's, it's all an, a side it's, hustle. It's, it's all a side hustle. It's and they, more work. It's what they call, it's what they <laughs> right. call gig economy. But, you know, my parents were married at 25, had a house by 25. Since we got out of college, I've lived in 11 apartments over 11 years. Wow. And I've done six to ten jobs. I can't even count. Right. Most of them are short-term contract work. Well, tell me a little bit more about that, like your experience with content creation, because you're sort of in this world, too. Well, the reason Mark Fisher really spoke to me was because it spoke to the alienation I was feeling um, as a content writer. I decided to make the group, the Mark Fisher memes for hauntological teens, after, like, December of 2018? Yeah, it was, it's over a year now. Um, I went to a Mark Fisher book thing in uh, in Brooklyn. Very cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very hip. <laughs> very hip. There were four panelists, some of whom had known Mark Fisher. Others were just kind of local celebrities. One of the podcasters from Chapo Trap House was on the podcast. I met Adam Friedland. He was in the uh, audience after the thing. It was an hour long. You can look it up on YouTube, Everso Books. Um, and it was celebrating Mark Fisher's life. They did a book release of 800 pages of his blog, K-Punk. Okay. He had a blog from the early 2000s to his unfortunate passing in 2017. Right. Where he just wrote a blog every day about his thoughts, about philosophy, about whatever movie he'd seen. You right. Know, he was a poptimist. <laughs> he, he really liked Drake's new albums, and he would talk about it in his lectures. He really liked Batman movies. Uh, one of my favorite essays of his is about Batman, um, the third one with Bane, um, <laughs> where he compared the movie to Occupy Wall Street. Uh, I didn't see that one, but I heard it had those overtones. You know, it was this big monolith this big book of this person's like life works and they showed a video of him and it was kind of haunting in a way it was mm -hmm. very haunting for one thing it was in this like weird bookstore loft space it was filled there really? there was like a hundred hundred fifty people packed into this small place that it was spilling over into the hallway a lot of people similar to me all these seemingly depressed, alienated people 
who had been drawn to this person speaking to their experience. Okay. It was really speaking to my experience at that point as a content writer because for the year prior to this, I had been working from home. I had been writing two articles a day for $60 an article. Right. Um, for over a year, I barely left the house. I barely had enough money to buy dinner for myself and, and have rent. And I felt like you were bar- in the grind. barely <laughs> human. I, yeah. I, I would just not leave my house for weeks at a time unless it was coming to practice. It was really lonely. Yeah. Um, and he right. definitely gave an explanation for that loneliness. He gave kind of this, it's not you, it's the system, but it was a lot smarter than that. Right. It was like these kind of jobs, well, they existed for a long time, for most part, like they existed for housewives in the 70s or like stay-at-home kind of job um, have always existed. But since the advent of the internet, the amount of at-home well, not menial, but like... Depending. <laughs> like Her. short-term contract work right. done from anywhere that's supposed to give you the freedom to go anywhere in the world in order to do work. One of the phrases I hate is when people put jobs up and they go, be your own boss. And uh, that, I, I hate that. And that, <laughs> that is... It's not true. You're the, always working for someone. That is the exact kind of propaganda that he would rail against and that's that kind of like be your own boss entrepreneurial spirit is sold to you as giving you more freedom but what it does is it really limits you and takes away freedom and that's that's one thing I learned working from home right was that yes I could be on a Bermuda Island doing the exact same thing as I was doing. But I couldn't because they weren't paying me enough to fly to Bermuda. So, <laughs> right. you know, what freedom did I have yeah. if, like, I had to limit the amount I left my home in order to make rent every right. month? Like, this got this me false thinking. Notion this false false sense of freedom, of freedom yeah. that with unlimited places to do work that you would be freedom be your own person when it just confined you that realization and that like doing it for a year made me really unhappy and and he definitely gave voice to that unhappiness another thing that that we talked about that we talk about a lot um and that he talks a lot about in his interviews that i think about you every time sam is the notion of time Mm -hmm. that time for money Yes. This notion that we are conditioned to equate time with money. And that that if you're not making money on your time off, then you're not being productive and therefore... Yes, yes. ...less of a person. And he talks about this at great length. Which is something I've struggled with in my business and my day-to-day life. Right. Like, you can easily adopt that mindset. I've gotten so busy at certain points that I could put a monetary value on my sleep. It got really disturbing. And <laughs> and he talks about this a lot. And he, he talks about it, and he's like, that's a stupid way to live. Mm-hmm. That is a stupid fucking way to live, that you have to put a dollar price on every hour of the day. And that's the type of thinking that hypercapitalist neoliberalism promotes because okay. it says, well, 
every hour of the day, you're available to make money and your boss expects you to make money throughout all that time, the conditioning is that if you take a break for an hour, you're letting yourself down or you're letting your boss down. Yep. You know, that is a rat in a cage yeah. mentality. You know, he, he struggled with it as a contract writer and he, you know, and because and, he did a lot of contract writing. Oh, he did? Yeah, yeah I mean, that is blogging. And again, in that uh, lecture that he gave that I sent today earlier, right. the first hour of it is just all about his struggles of being a contract writer because he has his writing that he wants to do, and that, then there's writing that he has to do in order to make contractual work done. And he said, he always says, you know, he had a scare, he had a cancer scare mm-hmm. where he got a false positive um, and said, they said he had cancer, and he said the first reaction he had was, oh, well, now I'll have a vacation so I can do the writing I actually <laughs> no. want to do. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's weird yeah. to think of that, but, like, that sounds insane. But yeah, and then to, you're like, why am I thinking this way? Yeah, why yeah. am I thinking this way? And he says, well, that is a perfect example of the way in which, you know, that sort of mindset gets into you that, like... <laughs> You need to capitalize on your illness, your life-threatening illness, to do right. something that you want to do because your life now doesn't allow you to. Right. And it's just other work, but it's pleasurable work rather than... And I, same thing, you know, I have I had my work that I did during the day, and then when I was done with the, you know, two articles a day, then I could do the writing I wanted to do. Right. The other thing he talks about is the way in which technology controls you. And, right, because it's all related. Right. And this is why I, I liked it, him so much, was his use of philosophers really showing how it went from being a disciplined society where, you know, we talk about it, everyone had one discipline that they were good at and you perfected that discipline to a control society where you didn't have any discipline but you could do whatever you wanted as long as you accepted that you were always under surveillance. Okay. And he talks about how that relationship is perfectly encapsulated with, you know, getting letters in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s to having emails sent to you mm-hmm. every second of every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how jobs are then conditioned... You. <laughs> conditioned yeah, conditioned on responding to emails and and getting your next opportunity through an email and that that is all part of the controlling aspect of capitalism to make you a slave to your phone or a slave to mm-hmm. the job and that there is no difference between work life and home life that there's the breakdown yeah, like of all those the same. Two, those two things are I hear that from from friends of mine, you know, a lot of them look for jobs. They're like, I just want to leave it at the workplace. I don't want a job that I can bring home with me. Exactly. And people ask me, like, when I do job interviews, you've been working for home for a while. Why do you want to work in the office again? And I'm like, because I miss the office. (laughs) That's the other thing that I realized, you know, that the precarity of working from home. It's a very precarious existence. It is, yeah. I would agree with that. From 
working in an office. At least when you're working in an office, you go out to lunch, you socialize with the same people every day. You know, you have like routines, you have like people you like, people you don't like, social situations that are pretty centralized. But if you're working from home, I went a year, over a year, working from home without ever having met my editor and without ever having met anybody who worked in the company. I went five years working for an editor with, and I think we tried to connect by phone once and we couldn't. And she might have left me a voicemail, but I never actually had a phone conversation with her the I entire had, five years. I had two phone conversations with people at this job for a year, over a year. Wow. And these are people that I relied upon for my rent, who I worked at least six hours a day. Right. And I had to learn how to turn off email notifications. I had to learn how to put the phone down. I do that when I go to Florida in the summer now. I try to disconnect. Well, uh, but the fact that you have to do that is, like, part of the problem. Mm -hmm. That is the problem, that you, you... There is no difference between being at work and being at home. Like, that was not a problem for most people before, like, 1970. Right, right. So do you think it was better in a way back then? No, society had its own issues back then. <laughs> but those issues aside, you know, just strictly in terms of the work-life balance. I think it's, it's seen as, it right. is seen as a success for capitalism. It has been a success to make the workers of this country so disparate, lacking centrality, lacking any desire or need for communal spaces, desire for public spaces, desire for public institutions to work for them. It is a success because once you have that and you don't believe that there's an alternative to it, then you accept that this is the best possible world that you can live in. Right. Working 80 hours a week for the same money that you would have made working 30 hours a week 20 years ago. Mm. You're right. accepting that that is... Due to wage stagnation? Wage mm. stagnation, lack of opportunity, the need to do two to three jobs in order to make one livable wage. Mm -hmm. That requires 80 hours. What you would have had to do 40. So, again, the title was... Is there no alternative? Is there no alternative? In your mind, what is the alternative? Well, he had, a, he had a book that he was starting to write when he died. Okay. And that was his alternative. It wasn't fleshed out because he, he wrote the introduction and then died. Okay. Uh, it was called Acid Communism, and it was a sort of what he saw as a project that started in the 70s, like, as an alternative, um, that he believed that with enough conscious raising. And, and a lot of it was re-evaluating, like, the revolutions of the 60s. Okay. Hence acid. Yeah, acid. Okay. And seeing acid as a political thing more so than just doing drugs. Okay. As, like, a slowing down of time, as communing as a group, being empathic with the people around you. Right. Um, like, seeing how that could then lead to someone, you know, with more, you know, democratic ideas about the world, radical feminism, right. socialism, black liberation. So he's not calling for, like, an end to capitalism. No. He's, like, saying that 
this is an alternative. Okay. Is there no alternative? This is his alternative. But could capitalism coexist in this system that he was like envisioning? I mean, or the, capitalist principles? The, the, the dogmatic answer to that is that capitalism would reach such a point that it could not sustain itself without majorly reorganizing. Like that's the kind of dogmatic Marxist okay. answer to it. That with enough alienation from your labor, with enough societal loneliness, <laughs> with enough lacking of opportunity, with a, enough absence of a social safety net, that we as a society would have to rise up as a movement, possibly behind a political figure, but in more dogmatic terms and revolutionary means, and really reorganize society so that it helps more people than it hurts. Right. And Which that... Ardent capitalists would say that's utopian, that's not practical, that's... I think they it's get just, very scared by those kinds of ideas. I, I think it's just a alternative. Right. I, 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 think, yeah. I think capitalism is utopian mm -hmm. and provides a utopian future. We're living in it. It succeeded. So that's interesting. So capitalism has its own utopia, you're yeah. saying? Yeah. And this is it? This is it. This is people living, not having to leave their houses <laughs> and, yeah. and working for minimum wage. And it sounds like funny to say that, but yeah. That is the promise. That is the future that capitalism provides. Right. And in his ontology kind of thing, it cancels most futures. That there's a canceled future by that very design. Right. Because we're always looking in the past. We're always haunted by what could have been. And he was very obsessed with retrofuturism. Okay. All these things, like, showed these, like, futures that could have been, like, this utopian future that our far-off future would provide. Okay. Um, and that we still have this notion that it's in the future, but it's already happened. Mm -hmm. So there's this retro-futurism. Okay. So, you know, these utopian visions for what capitalism could ultimately provide for a society have come true. We are living in it. Like, we have our autonomy, we have our individualism, we have our ability to, like, have what little sand we're given. <laughs> like the piecemeal of opportunities that capitalism provides for the majority of the people. For the majority, that's the whole yeah. key. Because yeah. some, some people listening to this might be like, well, look, like, look at the millionaire, look at the billionaire. But that's disproportionately, they're called the 1% for a reason. Yeah. It's disproportionately, like there's not... I would argue that there's not equal opportunity for, there's not a place for everybody at the table. That's not But I, I, I do think that, that, that the, the idea that socialism would provide or provides a utopia rather than just seeing it as a competing political movement is, is something that capitalism wants to see, you know, because it, you know, it wants to see it as a threat. It threatens taking from the, the rich and giving to the poor. And most of the people that say that it's dystopian or that it's not feasible are usually the ones with more money. <laughs> like, and, yeah. Or 
the temporarily embarrassed millionaires, the people that see themselves in the near future as having that much money. Right. Um, and why would you take away that opportunity? Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of that kind of embedded in his work. Um, he also has another book that I really love, The Weird and the Eerie. Oh, okay. Which right, is, I saw that when I was reading about him. Which is uh, more cultural. It, it examines, like, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and mm -hmm. uh, movies and books, and he does a whole chapter on Brian Eno, and it shows the difference between weirdness and eerie, where weird is, like, uh, where something is is that's not supposed to be there, like a third eye. Okay, like, right. Like, that's weird. <laughs> like, if I had a third eye, that would be weird. It's something that you know isn't supposed to be right, there. Right, it's like out of place. Whereas eerie is if you're, like, walking into an abandoned building where inhabitants used to be, but now they're not. Mm -hmm. So there's an absence of something, and that's horrifying. Like, or, you know, the beginning of 28 Days Later, when he wakes up and the town of, the whole city of London has no people in it. <laughs> right, like and Twilight Zone that's, or Yeah, that's horrifying yeah. in its own way. Okay. And so he looks at, like, horror movies and... Right. He looks at ambient music as this kind of eerie absence of... <laughs> Which so is it, fitting for us, because we like, we like some of that in this band. I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I, love, I love reading his kind of, like, brainy, brainiac takes on yeah. these kind of cultural things. And that was... You know, his third book. I think it was released a couple months after he died. Right. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to episode four, part one, with Steve Klett. We're going to be back the following week. Uh, we're going to try to post the second episode one week from when episode one is going live. So come back for episode two with Steve, and it's going to be a continuation of this very interesting discussion. Thanks again. Are you content? The Content Podcast is a production of Affordable Content, LLC, all rights reserved. Hosted by Sam Negraval and edited by Matthew Hyde, with music by Undercover Rabbis, all rights reserved. Connect with Affordable Content on Facebook and LinkedIn. And feel free to reach out to me, Sam Negraval, on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn, or by emailing sam at affordcontent.com. Thank you for listening.